Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In a few moments, I'm going to read verses 17 to 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled Connecting the Dots, the Gospel, and Your Life. And the thinking behind this sermon series has been this. Most of us, if we have grown up in the church or have been going to church for a while or even if we've lived in this culture uh, in the belt of the, uh, the buckle of the Bible belt, most of us can articulate an answer to the question, what is the gospel? Even if we don't believe the gospel, most people, if you've been around these parts for a while, if you gave us a written test, could answer the question, what is the gospel? We might put something like, The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Or if you've been here at Redeemer for a while, you may say uh, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died so that I can have a relationship with God. Both of those are accurate answers. And most of us, if we are believers and believe the gospel, most of us believe that that message, that good news, should make a difference in how we live our everyday lives. But if you ask us that question on a test, it's a little more difficult to answer. Most folks would say, well, I know I'll go to heaven when I die. It makes a difference in my eternity. But if you press us for how it makes a difference in the way we live our lives every day, many of us have trouble answering that question. We have trouble connecting those dots. And so what we're doing in this sermon series is taking an event from everyday life or an issue from everyday life, and I'll talk about that at the beginning. Then we have some teaching on the gospel from God's word today from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then we connect the dots. We connect that teaching to the issue that we talked about at the beginning, and our hope and prayer as a leadership has been that as we do this week after week that we would develop this skill of applying the good news of the gospel to our everyday lives. That we would develop what we might call gospel instincts. That would be people who are driven by the gospel. So let's do that together now. An issue from everyday life. Many of you know I'm a pastor. Uh, and as you might guess, pastors spend a lot of time, I get a lot of time preparing to preach and to teach and preparing uh, for our worship service. It's the most public thing that we do. And so I always want this time to be time well spent and to equip and prepare you for the week that is coming up. I also spend a good bit of time pastoring people, counseling people, whether it's pre-engagement counseling or premarital or marital counseling or career counseling or pretty much anything that somebody's wondering, what does the Bible have to say about this area of my life? I spend time with people talking about that. What most folks don't know is that there is a business side to running a church, It takes money for this building to be here, for these lights to be on, for us to have heating and air. We uh, take money to run background checks on the people that we pay to watch your children while they're in here. And we pay some of the folks who do the work, although most people are volunteers, we pay a lot of people to help us do the ministry that we do from this place. And so with any organization, there is income. There are expenses, and I'm not alone in that. Our deacons do a great job of helping us with that and planning for that, managing our cash flow. Uh, And usually when you get to this point in a sermon, a preacher is preaching, oh, he's preaching on money. They must be behind on giving. They must be, listen, 
you are not on a sinking ship here, okay? Our deacons do a great job, and we have about six months of operating expenses in the bank, which is healthy for an organization, and giving this year is right on par with where it was this time last year. So we're about where we were before. So why are you preaching on money? Here's the reason why. Because even though giving this year is about the same as it was last year, we have more members than we have ever had at our church. And we have a lot of new folks who are coming and checking us out. And I rarely preach on money. In the last 14 years, I can count on one hand the times I've preached on money. And so new folks coming, you may not know our philosophy of money. And for people here who are members, many of our members do not give any amount whatsoever to the work of the church, despite the fact that we take vows when we join our church to support the church and its worship and work to the best of our ability. So I want to talk about money today, and I want to talk about how the gospel affects our view of money and our relationship with money. Now, for many of us, as soon as we hear this talk about, if the organization is not in trouble, he must want a raise or something, right? This guy must be about the money. And there are a lot of preachers who have used the pulpit in order to prosper themselves. And the cynical among us may think that's what's going on here. Let me just assure you, I am so not about the money, okay? If you don't know, I practiced law for 10 years before I became a pastor, and if I was really about the money, I would have kept practicing law. I'm so grateful for what I'm paid here. I do not need a raise. I'm paid very well for what I do here. But the fact is, this year, if I'm paid what the budget says, it'll be less than half of what I made the last year that I practiced law, which was 15 years ago. So let me just assure you, this is not about the church not doing well financially, because it is. This is not about me wanting a raise or wanting more money. I am so not about the money. But let me tell you what I am about as your pastor. I'm about your heart. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the reason, or one of the reasons why the Bible talks about money as much as it does, is because what you do with your money is a pretty good indication of where your affections are, where your desires are, what you hold to be most important, what your priorities are. So we're going to spend some time today and talk about how the gospel affects our view of money and how the gospel affects our relationship with money. I'm going to read verses uh, 17 through 19 to 1 Timothy 6. I'll pray for us and we'll dig in. Hear now God's word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would be with us now. The message about money and our culture is so skewed, and the message about money from so many of our churches is also so skewed. 
And so I pray now that you would speak to us clearly from your word. Help me to say only what your word says. And I pray that you would be at work in the hearts of your people, not because we care about money or, the, or because you need money, but because you desire our hearts and our devotion and our affection. So please come now and use this time to draw your people to yourself. And I pray that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to do so. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I don't know how you're doing right now, but remember I sat where you sat for 10 years or so in this denomination. And I know that most people hate it when preachers preach on money. And most of the time we do because we just feel guilty. Usually there's no gospel in connection with this at all. We get that same old three-point sermon, right? The Bible says to give. Y'all aren't giving enough. You need to give more. And usually heaped on top of it is some more guilt, right? There are kids in Africa who are starving to death, who are dying and going to hell. So you need to give more money. Feel guilty and give more. That's kind of the usual tack. And I've often sat where you are and wondered, well, where's the good news of the gospel in that, right? Well, as I've studied this week, I want you to know, I dreaded preaching and talking about this topic of money. But as I've studied this week, I've been refreshed. And my prayer has been that you would be refreshed as well. And I'm excited to take this time to look and see what the Bible says about money. And I'm hoping that you come away looking at it in a new and refreshing way. And here's the first point that I see in God's word about this. If you've got the order of worship, there are sermon notes on the back. And the, the first thing I see in the scripture is this. God wants us to enjoy the good things he gives us. God wants us to enjoy the good things that he gives us. And God's goodness makes us want to be a giving people. God's goodness to us makes us want to be a giving people. Let's look at that together. First, God wants us to enjoy the good things he gives us. The scripture describes God as our father. Jesus told us to pray to our father who art in heaven, our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, right? The scripture tells us that we're adopted into God's family, into his own household. And the scripture also says, like any good father... Our Father God loves to give us good gifts, and he has blessed us. If you live in this place at this time, he has blessed us more than 95% of the rest of the world. I know this text was written to those who are rich. I know there may be people in your subdivision that make more than you, or people in this town that make more, or certainly people in this country that make more than you. Compared to the rest of the world, we are all rich. God has richly blessed us, and he wants us to enjoy good gifts, and he gives us those gifts. I think of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, where Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus assured us that God loves to give us good gifts and that he wants us to enjoy the things that he gives us. James chapter 1 and verse 17, we're told, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
who does not shift, who doesn't change like shifting shadows, that God is consistent and faithful in blessing us with every good and perfect gift that we have. So God is a Father who loves to give good gifts. Even this text that we just looked at, do you see it there? As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, we'll talk about in a minute, but to set our hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy the good things that he gives us. Uh, It's not just a New Testament concept. I think of the example in the book of Nehemiah. Do you remember when Nehemiah and Ezra recover the law and they're reading it to the people? And the people have not read the law in a long time. And they certainly have not been doing what God commands in his law. And so the people begin to mourn and weep. And Ezra and Nehemiah, you can read in Nehemiah chapter 8 down around verse 10, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, the priests, they go to the people and they say, do not mourn, do not weep, go and eat choice food, drink fine wine, Share with those who don't have those things, because this day is holy to the Lord. So do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God wanted his people to enjoy the good things that he had given them. Not just there in the rebuilding of the temple, I think of the psalmist. Psalm 104, down around verse 15, reminds us that God gives food and wine Why? Just so we'll be nourished, just so we'll have something to eat and drink? No. Psalm 104 and verse 15 says, God gives us food and wine to gladden our hearts. Not just to nourish us. God wants us to enjoy the good things that he gives us. Enjoying a good steak can be glorifying to God. Enjoying a warm box of Krispy Kreme donuts at least takes me right up into the presence of God. That must be what heaven smells like. But the point is this. We don't have to feel guilty about making money or having things. I don't know if you've ever heard a preacher say that before. That we don't have to feel guilty about making money or having things. Nor do we have to avoid enjoying some of the blessings of wealth. But let's be careful Okay, because thinking what is true, that God wants us to enjoy the good things that he gives us, that is true, but that can quickly turn into a self-serving, self-indulgent lifestyle. Look around in our culture. We live in a day where consumerism, where money is one of the idols of our time. And God tells us in his word that he gives some people more stuff so that they can share with those who don't have as much. You heard it in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 that we just talked about. Remember he said, eat choice food, drink fine wine, and share with those who don't have those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 13 and 14 say the same thing, that God gives some people more stuff so that they can share with those who don't have as much. 
James chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, both say if we see a brother or sister in need and we have resources but we withhold those things, then we should question whether we really belong to God. So yes, we have many good gifts and God has blessed us. But God has given us more so that we can share with those who don't have as much. That's a hard thing for us to hear because we like to keep what is ours. But I want to show you the power that God gives in his word, the enablement, the motivation that he gives to be a giving people. Certainly Jesus And his giving himself for us is our primary motivation for us to give to others. I'm turning back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. This will be our benediction today. But I want you to hear how what Jesus has done for us should motivate us as followers of Jesus to be a people who are generous. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now let's think about that for a moment. Jesus had it all. He was in heaven where he was worshipped and adored and everybody did what he said. But he gave all that up. And he came to earth where he was mistreated and misunderstood, where he ultimately was mocked and beaten and gave his life. He gave everything. Why? So that we can live in his kingdom. And the kingdom of God grew because of his sacrifice. To use economic language that we might use now, Jesus leveraged his position. And he gave up his own resources for us to add us to the kingdom of God instead of holding on to those things and enjoying those things for himself. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he gave those things up for us so that we might be a part of his kingdom. So the question for us is, How can we be selfish with the stuff that Jesus gives us? How can we be not willing to give up everything for his kingdom and for other people so that they might live? Doesn't his care and love and sacrifice for us make us more willing to care and love and sacrifice for others? As we see what Jesus did, as we remember, as we meditate on what Jesus did for us, and as we become more like Jesus, we give up more and more of what God has given us in order to grow his kingdom. And as God gives us positions of power or influence, or as God gives us more money, we should leverage those positions and give for the kingdom of God just as Jesus did for us. I heard a preacher say one time, if the Lord increases our standard of living, then we should increase our standard of giving. And I think that preacher was right. God wants us to enjoy the good things he gives us. And God's goodness to us makes us, should make us want to be a giving people. But the Bible goes even farther than that. 
And frankly, some of this is, are, are things that I have not heard before. I haven't heard preachers say this. So I want you to hear this from God's word. Here's the second thing I want you to hear. It is wise to build wealth. It is wise to build wealth. But we must find our security and our enjoyment in God and not in our money. It is wise to build build wealth. Proverbs 14 verse 24 tells us the crown of the wise is their wealth. Proverbs 13 and verse 22 reminds us that the wise leave an inheritance to their children's children. Now that's a good bit of money that God expects wise people to die with. So we know that the general rule must not be that you sell everything and give it for the kingdom of God. Now God does call some people to do that. Think Jesus and the rich young ruler. He does call them to give up everything to follow Jesus, and some people are called to do that. That's not the general rule. Or Zacchaeus, he gives away half of everything he has, probably because he had stolen most of it and gotten it in a way, the ill-gotten gain in a way that he shouldn't. He gives away half. Not all of us are called to do that. But the general rule is not that we give away all that we have. The Bible tells us that building wealth is wise. And it's a fact that building wealth can increase our ability to give to others. Think about it. The early Christians met in homes. You can read that in Acts 2. They went from house to house. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. The early Christians met in homes. They didn't have facilities like this. Think about what that means. That means that there were followers of Jesus who owned homes. And allowed other followers of Jesus to meet there. So we're not called to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. Through home ownership and because of where we live, through compound interest and investing wisely, we can accumulate a sizable savings. And we can actually give away more money over our lifetime if we invest some money rather than giving all of our disposable income away as soon as we get it. Sometimes investing some money now allows us to give more over the course of our lifetime. If you are in money management, you're welcome. You can quote me on that. You know, uh, I'm not asking for a cut. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, right? But we do have to balance that view. Because if that's all the Bible said, then we might just become hoarders trying to put away as much as we can. And James chapter 5 clearly condemns that approach. And the word condemns that approach because it is also true that there are people in need now. And the kingdom of God needs support now. So we do need to give away some money now. But we can save money and accumulate wealth in a way that honors God. There has to be a category for that because of the passages that we looked at. Now let's think about that for us, okay? Think about that with me. For some of us, our tendency is to save money obsessively because we want to be sure that we're going to have enough. For others of us, it's not that hard to spend money. We're good at that, right? 
for others of us, we like the things that money can buy for us. And so we spend our money on clothes or on shoes or on cars or on houses or on gadgets or on other things for our own enjoyment. So for that first group, the ones that we say might obsessively save or hoard their money, money is a source of security for them. For that second group, the group that, that, that finds it easy to spend money, their money is a source of enjoyment for them. And Jesus speaks to both of those groups in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, Matthew talks to that first group, the ones that, that hoard their money, the ones that are worried and, and they want to be sure that they will have enough. Jesus says to him in Matthew 6 and verse 26, he says, Consider the birds of the air. He said, They don't plow a field and plant seeds and reap and harvest and store up things in barns. They don't save their money. But God provides for them. And are you not worth far more than birds? Of course, the point is what Jesus is saying is he's saying don't be so dependent on money for your security. Because God can take care of you way better than money ever could. And to that second group, that group that finds it easy to spend, that group that, that group that uses money for their own enjoyment. Jesus speaks to them as well, and he says to that group, consider the lilies of the field. They don't spend money on clothes, yet God dresses them, arrays them, in a way that is far more beautiful than even Solomon with all of his riches. The, even the way he could dress. These lilies of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow are dressed by God in a far more luxurious appearance than even what the greatest king would have. And of course Jesus' point is this. He says don't be so dependent on money for beauty. Or for enjoyment. Because God will add a beauty and a significance and enjoyment to your life way better than money ever could. Those things are true. Now watch how what is true drives what we do. We're connecting the dots now. We've seen this truth. We've had this teaching from God's word. How does that connect to our daily lives? We've already turned the corner some. But let's explicitly talk about how what is true, the truth in God's word. How does that drive what we do? Think about the truth. God provides security and beauty and enjoyment way better than money ever could. So if my money is no longer my primary source of my security or my beauty or my enjoyment, then I will find that I have more money to give away. People who worship God and not money will find that we need much less money to be happy and secure. That is true. 
So what is it that we do? How does that affect the way we live our lives? So what we do is we give more money away to see the kingdom of God grow instead of growing our own kingdom. Let's keep going. That's the theoretical. That's how the truth affects what we do. Let's get very practical. So what you really want to, so how much am I supposed to give, right? What does the Bible say? How much am I supposed to give? Let me talk about two errors that I hear from folks. I hear some folks say, well, God wants 10%. I will tithe, but after that I can do whatever I want to with my money. No, that's, that's an error. It's not like we give 10% to God and then can use the other 90% for whatever we want. People who give a tithe so that they can get on with their self-centered life have not yet been gripped by the goodness of the gospel and what God has done for them. Jesus did not give 10% for us. Jesus gave it all. And what Jesus deserves in response to what he has done for us is that we would be willing to give all that we have and all that we are for him. So we cannot give 10% of our income and check off the box and live however we want as if we could buy off God with 10% of our income. No, that is an error. A second error that I hear, some people give 10% as a means to get God to increase the other 90% that they have. Because God does talk in his word about blessing those who are faithful in their giving. Let's just go ahead and look. Malachi chapter 3. You can't preach on money without looking at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in... Verse 8, God, speaking to his people, says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. There are promises from God to bless our faithful giving. Notice from the text, God says we're to give 10% of our income. We're to give a tithe or else we are robbing God. And he seems to take it very seriously. He says you are cursed with a curse for not bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. That is a serious thing. Also notice that it is true that God promises to bless us when we give. He says that he will keep away the destroyer so that our, our crops, are, so that the work of our hands will prosper and that all the nations will look at us and we'll have a land of delight and they will call us blessed, that he will Open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. It is true that God promises to bless us when we give. But some people read this and their giving becomes an investment plan to get more stuff. Think about that with me. If we give money to God to get more money from God, 
then what do we really want more than anything? God or money? Who's our real God? Who is ultimate for us? Getting more money is not the reason we give. We give as a grateful response to the God who gave us everything that we have. If we give money to God to get more money from God, then we are not worshiping God. We are using God to get more money. And it's the money that we worship. And that's an error. That is a wrong way to look at it. So what's the right view? What does the Bible say? Well, I do think 10% is a good guide. That's a good baseline. We find that in the Old Testament. We just saw it in Malachi. And the New Testament says something very similar. Jesus says the same thing in a different way in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Uh, Again, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 42, he's talking to Pharisees. And these guys follow the letter of the law. They tithe, they give 10% even of their mint and their cumin and their dill, like the stuff from their spice garden that they have. They give 10% even of that. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, you tithe and that's good. You ought to give 10%. You ought to do that. Don't neglect to tithe. Don't neglect to give 10%. But... Don't only tithe. Don't just tithe and then neglect justice and mercy and the love of God. Do both. And that's the best answer from God's word. Yes, 10% of our income is a good baseline. Then over and above that, don't neglect to do justice and mercy and the love of God to people as you see them in need. Do you do that? Look, the bottom line is this. Jesus does not need your money. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your love. Jesus wants your ultimate devotion and for you to not have any gods above him. And if that's true, the question is, are you willing to give up everything for him? And is that evident by the fact that you are at least giving some percentage to his work regularly? What does your spending show that you delight in? When you get a bonus or a tax refund or money that you did not expect, where does your mind go? What does your checkbook or your credit card statement show that you value enough to spend your money on. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But remember the Bible does not just talk about our spending money. Let me just ask you, what does your saving show? Remember we have to strike a balance here. Are you unwisely not saving anything at all? The Bible would say that's unwise not to save. You can give more money over a lifetime if you save money and wisely build wealth. Do you save? By the same token, to strike the balance, are you hoarding money? Are you saving obsessively? Who are you trusting with your future? People are suffering now. There are needs in the kingdom of God now. Is there something you should do now? 
Can you depend on God who provides today to also provide for you tomorrow? We need to be asking ourselves these kinds of questions. And as I close, I want to move past money and, and, and ask this question. For a moment, let's just stop asking how much I should give, and let's ask this question. Whose kingdom am I building? Whose kingdom am I devoted to? The Father emptied heaven of his greatest treasure and sent his only Son so that we can have a place in his kingdom. God graciously made a way for us to get into his kingdom by dealing with our sin that would have kept us out. And the blood of Jesus covers our sins of robbing God. The blood of Jesus covers our sins of unwisely failing to save money. The blood of Jesus covers our sin of hoarding our resources and looking to it as security instead of trusting God. And the power to do what God calls us to do in his word comes from seeing and believing that Jesus was willing to give up his place of power and privilege and prestige to pay for our sin with his suffering and his life so that we can be in the kingdom of God. And that's why we're willing to give to God all that we have and all that we are for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes so that we will have a heart that gives cheerfully, a heart for his kingdom, a heart after his own heart who gave so much and so freely for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these things are difficult. There's so many things that we need to balance. Holy Spirit, please come and do your work of opening our minds. Help us to see the truth. Holy Spirit, please come down and do your work of convicting us of sin, of showing us where we fall in our views of money, where we are in error, and strengthen us to walk in your ways and to walk in great gratitude for what you have done for us. Please come and do that. We cannot manage these things on our own. Holy Spirit, only you can empower us to do these things. So please come and do that in the lives of your people. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.